Let's pray one more time before we get started here. Father, as we sang that last song, we sing it from our heart. Holy Spirit, rain down. We depend on your Holy Spirit. I personally depend on your Holy Spirit this, this hour to come and teach us, to speak through me. May I step aside and let you have your way. That your will, will would be done. Your word would do its work. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, had a couple of conversations this week, first with my wife and then with Arthur, uh, about this, uh, this uh, thought that came in my head about teaching. And, and uh, Beth and I were actually talking about teaching stuff at school. And then it kind of washed over into teaching in the church. And, and then uh, I just, the most interesting teaching uh, method I have ever sat under in academics was a class at A&M my senior year. And Dr. Geiger came in the first day and gave us the parameters of the semester project we were to do by the end of the semester. He wrote all the stuff that we had to accomplish, this, this thing. We, and it wasn't just like calculation stuff. It was like, figure this out and go build it in the lab and make it work. And I would describe all the parameters, but it wouldn't really matter to you. The point here in the story is he told us this the first day of class, and not a single person in the room knew how to do a single thing in that project that day. And we were all looking at each other like, we're going to fail. How are we going to ever get this done? But the whole course was pointed toward that project. Every day's instruction was used to get us there. He told us what the end result would be, and then he told us how to get there for the rest of the semester. And we had all like almost run out of class when we got a new part of the project, run to the lab, and start working on it. And said, oh, wow, that does work. Wow, we can make a circle on the oscilloscope. That's kind of cool. <laughs> I know you don't care. I did. <laughs> you know, the oscilloscope where you see the waves and stuff, they always look at that little green screen when they're doing electronic stuff. It never makes sense what they say in the movies that they're doing and what you see on the screen. It aggravates me, okay? <laughs> but when you see a little circle on the oscilloscope and you made it happen, it's like, wow. <laughs> a month ago, I had no idea you could even do that, much less how. My point is, he mentioned the Sermon on the Mount, and this is where mine and Arthur's conversation went to tonight. That's kind of what Jesus did in the Sermon on the Mount. He said, here's where you're going. This is the kingdom. This is what the kingdom looks like. And everybody in the crowd, if they were really paying attention and really considering how they really were, you know, what state they were really in, they all looked at each other and said, how can we ever get there? We don't know how. So he sent his Holy Spirit, and his Holy Spirit worked through men and women, and we were given the Word of God. And part of what we're going to start today is one of those things that he gave us to say, here's how you do it. That's what the, all the Pauline letters are. We've covered Romans and Hebrews and the, and the Sermon on the Mount 
in the last few teachings I've gone through. Those are, you know, the Romans and Hebrews, two of the big ones. Here's how you do it. Well, James is where we're going to be for a little while. And it's, it'll, it feels a little more like introductory. It feels a little bit more basic and maybe understandable and reachable. It's an interesting book because you, it's almost like Proverbs that you can kind of just reach in and get something and say, man, that's kind of cool. It's not tied necessarily in a long, drawn-out story. It's, oh, look, here's another thing I can use. Put that in my heart. And, oh, and here's another thing I can put. And, you'll, and if you're not familiar with James, you're going to find that there's a whole bunch of stuff in James that you hear quoted all the time. It's that kind of book. It shows up all the time. We quote it, don't even know where it came from, don't care. It's the Word of God. <laughs> you know. Now, Tom cares. He knows exactly where it is. I just care it's the Word of God. And I would like to know more of where it comes from. We're going to find out some of that as we go through this. But uh, as, as you know me, I like to look at the, the details even outside of the scriptural importance of what we're going to look at. Look at who James was. Who is this James? There were lots of Jameses hanging around Jesus. Okay? There were lots of Jameses. You've heard of Peter, James, and John. That's not this James. That James was another James. That's James and John, the sons of Zebedee, right? That's not this James. There's also another James apostle. That's not this James. That was James the Last, they call him. You never hear about him, except he was an apostle. Very odd. I need to look into that more, because it's like, he was there. He was an apostle, but we don't know much. But James, this James, the half-brother of Jesus. Why would it be the half-brother of Jesus? Because there's only one son of God. (laughs) And so he and Jesus had different fathers. Yeah. Joseph and Mary were this James' mom and dad. And so a half-brother to Jesus. By the way, this half-brother Jesus thought Jesus was crazy when he came out and said, I'm the son of God. It's like just about everybody else around him. Just about all of Jesus' family thought the same thing. Are you kidding? We know you. <laughs> We've known you since a pup. You know? And I'm sorry, I just can't buy into this son of God thing. And James was one of those. He did not believe Jesus was the son of God until he saw him resurrected. Because James was one of the ones that actually witnessed Jesus after his resurrection. How could you deny the Son of God then? And he did not deny him ever again. Quite a transformation. Kind of like Paul or Saul on his horse on the way to Damascus. First he's basically arranging to have Christians imprisoned and killed. And then this light appears, and he's knocked off his horse. And the first thing he says is, Lord, Lord, transformed in an instant. James, I believe, probably had the same instantaneous transfiguration in his heart seeing the resurrected Christ. So, that's the guy who wrote this book. Some people, some people I even know personally, 
don't like the book of James, think it ought not to be in the Bible. That's true. And it's not just a few crackpots. It's people who think seriously about Scripture and study because if you don't just take the whole Word of God along with you through James, it would appear that it disagrees with Paul a lot because James is going to talk about what we do, our works, what we do with our hands, how we live our lives, and it sometimes might appear to be in in conflict with Paul's message of saved by grace, not by works. So let me just make it clear in the beginning. We are saved by grace, not by works. But we have work to do. We have work to do. And if we don't do it, it doesn't get done. We have work to do in the kingdom of God, and that's what James is going to talk about a lot. Okay? This was the first New Testament epistle written. It was written before any of the others that we have in the Bible. It was written before the Pauline letters. It was only about ten years after the resurrection when he wrote this letter. So, I'll, I'll tell you, you've got you to gotta be a man of God. You've got to be filled with the Spirit to say, I'll just go ahead and write the first one. <laughs> Let me just go ahead and get this out there. <laughs> Instead of waiting for Paul or somebody else, because he, James knew these other pillars, the, the apostles he knew. Like, I think maybe I would have said, I'll wait for Paul to write something, and then I'll try to follow suit. But that is not what James did. By the leading of the Holy Spirit, he did not wait. First of the books of the New Testament. So, that's the introduction. I want to, wanted to make sure you understood who wrote the book, when the book was written, a little bit about the maybe controversy you may hear over the years concerning the book, and now we're going to study the book for the next few weeks. Don't know how long it'll take. It'll take as long as it takes. And we're going to probably get through, I suspect, maybe verse 15 today, so I'm just going to read that much of it. James chapter 1, verse 1 through 15, just going to read straight through it. And uh, I'll tell you, just so we all have the same, I'm going to be teaching from the NET, but Tom, would you put NIV up there for me? And we'll just read off the screen here. James, he's introducing himself as servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the twelve tribes scattered among the nations, greetings. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. If any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. But when you ask, you must believe and not to doubt, because the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea blown and tossed by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. 
Such a person is double-minded and unstable in all they do. Believers in humble circumstances ought to take pride in their high position. But the rich should take pride in their humiliation, since they will pass away like a wildflower. For the sun rises with scorching heat and withers the plant. Its blossom falls and its beauty is destroyed. In the same way, the rich will fade away even while they go about their business. Blessed is the one who perseveres under trial because having stood the test, that person will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. When each person is tempted, when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed, then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. That's where we'll probably stop today. Maybe we'll get there. We'll see. There's a lot in that few section, few verses. I mean, there's a, it like, let's just cover a lot of ground right here first and get started. So from James, in, in the NET it says, from James, a slave of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the guy that didn't even believe in Jesus, his own half-brother, uh, until the resurrection. And now he introduces himself, not as James, the half-brother of Jesus. He introduces himself as a slave of God, servant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. And he is directing this to the 12 tribes dispersed abroad. This is after the scattering of the saints, the scattering of the Christians out of Jerusalem, okay? Uh, And leaving just like the apostles behind. So the Christians all scattered through the working, I believe, the plan of God was this is how we're going to start spreading this gospel. You've got to scatter the people. And so that's where this is. It's after that point. So he's directing this to the folks that left. Let me give you this help in instruction in Christianity since you're gone and can't sit here under our teaching. And so these people were persecuted in Jerusalem and driven out. That's what had happened. So now he says, my brothers and sisters, consider it nothing but joy when you fall into, into all sorts of trials. <laughs> and I, I would dare to say none of us are good at that. We're not. We know what the Word says about this right here. We say this all the time. Consider it pure joy. I put it on the marquee. All these things, we've heard it and seen it, and we're just not good at it because our souls are involved in, in all that we do throughout our day. And when we come up against a trial, all sorts of trials, big and little, the first thing that comes to mind is not normally joy. But it should be. Because he said it should be. Consider it nothing but joy. But it's not the trial. It is the result of it that brings the joy. You're not, you don't have to be happy about the hard thing that's going on. 
but you ought to be joyful about where it's going to take you because of God's hand on you in it. That's the point. But we instead, many times, focus on the current situation and can't find joy. All we find is just anger, frustration. Why can't I get out of this? I'm going to talk about that in just a second. By the way, this same word for trials can also be temptations. And different versions use different ways of translating this. But it has to do with context and, and uh, usage. So you'll see it used both ways. But I'll just tell you, a trial is something we walk through and you might even find that you, it is thrust upon you. A temptation is something outside of you that lures you and you choose it. Because if, it, if, if a trial was something just out there and you were given the choice, I'm going to choose to go to that trial, we would never go. So it's two different things, trials and temptations. But it's kind of a mixture of how this word is used through this chapter and, and I just want to make that clear. Get it clear that a trial is not something we choose. We would never do it. A temptation, though, which we're going to see more of later, is something that is offered not by God, but by Satan through the world and our situation, and we have the choice to pursue it or not. Here we're talking about trials that we're in, not by our choosing. And we're to find nothing but joy in it. And in verse 3, because you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance. That word endurance, hupamane. Now this is really important. Remaining under. Okay? Endurance is what it's translated here in the NET, I think the NIV as well. But the King James says works patience. Well, patience doesn't work for me. This, I mean, it's like I don't really want patience in the midst of this, but if you look at this remaining under idea, you are in this situation that's pressing down on you. And you have a choice to crawl off the altar and get out of it at times or kind of squirt out the side and not let it do its work. But it says if you'll endure, if you'll remain under, just let it do its work. That's not easy. But it says you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and then endurance, remaining under that, having its perfect effect when it is complete, when you let the trial and the pressure have its work completed, what happens in four, so that you will be perfect and complete, 
when the work is done, let it have its complete work, then you will be perfect and complete, not deficient in anything. We cannot expect to be grown up and matured in God without stuff happening to us and testing our faith and training us and pressing us and doing work on us. You just can't expect change without work being done on you. But when you feel that pressure and it's just, you think it's unbearable, let your faith rise up and say, I will remain under because I know God's doing a work. Because I know there's a joy to be had in the end. This is not joyful. But that's not what he says it should be. He says it has a work to do. And if you'll endure, remain under, then, and let that be completed, then you will become perfect and complete. And that doesn't mean without any fault. It means mature and grown up and more useful to God. I love that picture. I, I wish I could just describe everything in my head when I think about remaining under. Let me slow down a little bit. That becoming perfect, lacking nothing, that perfect is the word teleos, T-E-L-E-O-S, like telescope. It's a reaching an end. It's like reaching out to something. It's not, it's not so much about without fault, but it's a reaching a point. And so it, like this, this pressure, this test that we remain under causes us to reach a little further down the road to completion and perfection, wholeness, and more useful to God. So when you let that happen, the last of verse 4 in the NMV says, we will be wanting nothing in any, he says, not deficient in anything. The other translations don't include in verse 5, the word but, but in NET, verse 5 starts with but. If anyone is deficient in wisdom. But wait. What did it just say in 4? It said, you'll not be deficient in anything. And then in 5 it says, but if you're deficient in wisdom. The deficient, not deficient in anything, I believe, is pointing toward that end work. That's where we're headed. But along the way, we will need wisdom. And if we're honest with ourselves, we are deficient daily. And it says, but if you are deficient in wisdom. He didn't just, he was kind of a little bit kind when he said, if anyone is deficient. Instead of saying, since all of you are deficient in wisdom, which is the truth, we are all deficient at some level. He should ask God, who gives to all generously and without reprimand, and it will be given to him. This is a scripture that affected my life years and years ago. I saw that, I believed it, and started praying for it all the time. In big and little situations, praying for wisdom. Somebody comes to me and says, I need to talk to you about something. While they're talking about something, I'm praying, God, give me wisdom. I actually say it 
under my breath, believing that is the only source of wisdom for me. But he's also generous, and he pours it out on me. I believe he does. I'm not perfect in that, but I believe I must pray for wisdom or I'm not going to get it. I don't get it on my own. I can think through stuff. I can use logic and skill of intellect, but that's not what I ask for. I ask for wisdom from above. And many times when I'm praying in general about wisdom, I pray, God, give me the wisdom of Solomon. That is like the ultimate example in the Word. Give me the wisdom of Solomon and the mind of Christ. And I really desire that. I really desire that. And James says, do it. And then in 6, again, a little caveat. But he must ask in faith without doubting. So when you say, God, give me wisdom... Don't start wondering, will he give it to me? That's doubting. Say, God, give me wisdom, and no, he will. No, he will. Without wavering, no, he will. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea, blown and tossed around by the wind. I want you to think, The Perfect Storm. You know the movie? If you haven't seen the movie, I'm sorry, but I'm still going to use it for an example. Perfect storm, these storms that collide out in the, uh, like the North Pacific, uh, North Atlantic, I'm sorry, not the North, North Sea, but the North Atlantic area, and this fishing boat's out there, and it, it gets bad. They don't come home. And these huge waves, I mean, not, not waves, we're talking waves like the size of the building. Those are generated by the wind. That's it, wind. Wind blowing on the water. Nice breeze. No, high winds blowing on the water create these, and it just takes the water and pushes it around anywhere the wind wants to push it. And it says, that's what you're like. You're like that water, the wave itself being pushed by the wind, and you've got no control of it if you doubt instead of believe what you've prayed from God. You will not get anything you've asked for if you have that kind of doubt. You're just going to be pushed around, let the wind push you and cause you to flight cap and toss to and fro and never be on solid ground. In verse 7, for that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. In verse 8, since he is a double-minded individual, unstable in all his ways. That word double-minded, when I first saw the Greek word, it looks like disukos, but it's actually, I think, pronounced dipsukos. But it's like double-minded, two-souled, spiritually schizophrenic. Okay, that's what you can kind of consider that. Like, yes, he can, no, he can't. Yes, he can, no, he can't. But we would never do that. We would never waver because we're under this pressure. (laughs) If we would never waver, we'd not have to have this instruction. 
The instruction tells us where. Just, just like the Old Testament, I've said this many times, the law, God gave the law to Moses, and Moses gives it to the people, and it has some crazy stuff. Don't do this, and don't do this, and don't do this. And you're thinking, really? I'd never dream of doing that. But the only reason he said don't do that is because they were doing it. We've come a long way since then. You know, we're, we're a little bit more controlled, a little bit more corralled now because of that beginning, by the way. But when you see an instruction in the Word, it's because we're going to find ourselves in a situation where we will do something different than that, if not for the Word of God telling us, stay in there. Stay under. Remain under. Let it do its work. And then, in the midst of that, as you're going through that process, you're, you're walking through this maturing, lifelong maturing process that God puts us through and brings us to that point of maturity when we find we need wisdom without doubting, say, God, give me wisdom. And he says, no problem. I will pour it out on you. I will not reprimand you. I won't say you should have known better. I will just pour it out on you. Wow. Why wouldn't we all ask for wisdom all the time? He gives it without reproach, without reprimand. And we don't want to be that schizophrenic, spiritually minded man or woman. Yes, no, yes, no. So, verse 9. Now, the believer of humble means should take pride in his high position. In NIV, I mean, King James says, that the brother of low degree rejoice in that he is exalted. I think, does the NIV say something about boasting? No, it says take pride. It's interesting to be told that we should be prideful. But it's not in of ourselves. It's, it's actually recognizing we have been placed next to Christ. We have not attained it, but we have been given that place. Humble means should, be, should take pride in this high position. Joint heirs with Christ. Joint heirs. Interesting. Don't take pride in ourselves, but take pride in the place he has put us. That's boasting in God. Look at what he's done here. He has placed me here. Nothing on my own accord has gotten me here. But then, a warning. There's all kinds of warnings to the rich people in the Word. Verse 10, But the rich person's pride should be in his humiliation or humbleness, because he will pass away like a wildflower in the meadow. By the way, we will too. But the rich people, you know, you just warning. You know, you, you, uh, you just can't take pride in what you've built on your own. But be humble and take pride in humility. And then in verse 11, For the sun rises with its heat and dries up the meadow. The petal of the flower falls off and its beauty is lost forever. So also the rich person in the midst of his pursuits will wither away. I personally know a man who... Uh, 
his only uh, scale uh, for his own judgment of uh, his, his own success is how much money he makes. That's it. And he tells me stories about this deal and that deal and how he's done this and this is how I did it and takes a lot of pride in that. And he will be doing that until the day that he dies. In the midst of his business, he will fade away. Uh, you know, you, you hear the kind of the joke. So that rich guy, he he died. Uh, how much did he? How many? How much did he leave? You know, all of it. He left all of it behind, because the business and the money is not heavenly, and is not eternal. There's a a type of plant called ephemeral. And in the desert, there's this ephemeral plant that when it rains out in the desert where there was no plant, a heavy rain comes and boom, there's this plant. And it comes up and it grows, it flowers, it, it makes its seeds and it dies in as little as 10 days. Boom, done. You say, wow, that's awfully short. Well, from God's perspective, that's a when he's looking at the timeline of you know time on earth, out in eternity, we are a little blip on the radar. Boom, we're gone. And it says especially, he's just pointing out, warning these rich people, you will pass away like a wildflower in the meadow. Under the heat of the sun, you'll dry up. Your petals are going to fall off. And your beauty is going to be lost. Everything is relative. I say that a lot. Everything is relative. And all of us in this place, relative to many people on this earth, we are extremely rich. So let's not look around and say, well, that guy over there is rich and I'm not. Let's just say we're all rich relative to the poorest on the earth. Let's start there. And let's take this warning. Okay? Let's not set it aside. That's for somebody else. Let's not ever do that. Let the Word do its work at whatever level it needs to in our hearts. Hold on. That, that reminded me of something. I've got to go back and... Maybe it'll come back to me. Had to do that relativity thing, relative perspective. Uh, so let's go to verse 12. Happy is the one who endures testing, because when he has proven to be genuine, he will receive the crown of life like God promised to those who love him. Life that God promised. I know I use movie references all the time. I wrote in my in my notes here. Uh, think Thor and the hammer. <laughs> like when it's all said and done, will you be found worthy? You know, Thor could pick up the hammer because he was worthy. 
and he could toss it to somebody else, and it would just go to the ground because he was the one that's worthy, not others. So happy is the one, and Thor is very happy. In one of the movies, that, uh, uh, the last movie, I guess, when he's all messed up, he's all you know out of shape and stuff, and, and he and his, he you know reaches for his hammer, it comes flying back, and he and he gets it. He says, "I'm still worthy." He's happy. You know, it's like, "Whoa, wow, I'm still worthy." We ought to be happy like that when we've endured the testing because when he has proven to be genuine, he will receive the crown of life. Not the hammer of Thor, but the crown of life that God promised to those who love him. Thirteen. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself tempts no one. This is going back to that difference between trials and temptations. Okay, Now we're talking about temptations. But each one, in 14, each one is tempted when he is lured and enticed by what? His own desires. We all have desires. We've all got them. We cannot get rid of them. We can, though, choose to let them lead us. And it says, when he is lured and enticed by his own desires, in 15, then when desire conceives, you get a desire and a temptation together and they conceive. Think about that. What is conceived? Sin. And it is not just conceived, it later gives birth. When desire conceives, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is full grown, it gives birth to death. First of all, being tempted is not sin. If, if so, we would all be in sin all the time because Satan has a patent on tempting us. He has, in fact, he has a patent, individual patents for every one of us. I've got a, he's got a patent for Jimmy. He's got a patent for Rick. He's got a patent for everybody because he knows how to tempt us. And he will always do that. Sadly, it's not always really obvious. Because if it was, maybe we would see it coming and say, no, I see Satan's hand on that. No, it's stuff that we don't necessarily recognize. It's not overt. It's covert. It's under the table. It's Satan never rings the front door bell. He enters through the back door like he belongs there. And if you don't kick him out, if you don't say, no, I'm not going to give in to that, that desire, with that, I'm not going to let my desire take me along with that temptation, and conceive sin. If you don't say, Satan, you came in the back door, you need to go right back out the same way you came in. But it takes discernment, it takes an acknowledgement that you are being tempted by Satan, and that you are, and it's because of a desire that you already had. He doesn't bring a temptation to you that doesn't connect with a desire. It would be a waste of his time. It's like somebody offering me caviar to eat. Caviar, ooh. I've tasted caviar. I don't like it. Offer it to me all day long. I'm not taking it. No, thank you. 
So Satan will not tempt me with something like that that I don't have a desire for. Remember, he has a patent on what temptations work to connect with a desire. Because without that connection, without that conception between desire and temptation, the result of sin doesn't happen. So that's the process. So he says, oh, I know something that really will connect with you, and I'm going to bring it through the back door, and you're going to say, oh, isn't that nice? And not realize where it's going to be leading you. Fifteen, that when desire conceives, it gives birth to sin. And we know from Paul's teaching, by the way, James is blamed for not agreeing with Paul sufficiently enough, but here he agrees with where Paul said the wages of sin is death. When sin is full grown, when it grows up to full maturity, it gives birth to death. I'll just go ahead and finish with 16. Do not let do not be led astray, my dear brothers and sisters. So the end of this whole introductory part of the book, don't let a temptation be connected to your desire and let sin be conceived. Just don't be led that way. It is a leading a purposeful leading. It's not accidental. There's no neutral place to live in this earth. Like, I want to live all by myself, neutral. I don't care about God and I don't care about Satan. I'm going to live just neutral. No such thing. No such thing. You either live for God or you'll be under the prince of the power of the air. No other place. So don't be led astray. Don't be fooled into thinking that you're immune from temptation and that being linked with a desire to give birth to sin. Do you see how practical this is? This book is awfully practical. It's almost like it could be titled Practical Christianity, How to Get Through Your Day. That's what we're going to see a lot of as we go on through this book. That's what I have for today. Um, it's, it's interesting uh, in verse 16 uh, I read the uh, King James Version and it says do not err uh, and what they just read here a while ago do not err and then the NIV says what don't be deceived and then here's the message Bible um, so my dear friends don't get thrown off course the culmination of all those things has a central message and that central message is stay on course don't err 
continue on what God has given you. And that's be mindful. All of these things are saying be mindful of what God has said and stick to it. And uh, know that um, if you are seeking God's way, if you are wanting what God wants, then he is not going to leave you in the dark. If you ask, you will find. If you seek, he's going to tell you. Uh, it's not going to be a mystery. It's not going to, uh, he's not going to say, go find your way. He's going to lead you in the right direction. And so he will lead people to your life or he will tell you himself uh, whatever it takes. He will be um, very faithful to you to find your course in life. So uh, be very rest assured that he will not let you flounder around and uh, to fi- try to figure it out on your own. Uh, God is good that way. Um, Remember, um, I I love what Jimmy put out on the board. Um, Our hope should lead us to intercession. Intercede for one another. Intercede for Crane. Intercede for this church. Um, Be in prayer for those who are hurting. Um, And... uh, there are plenty of those around. And so if God puts someone on your heart to pray for, that means God is wanting to do something in their life. You know, that's... And He's asking you to step up. Step up and pray. And, uh, you know, it doesn't have to be 30 minutes on your face wailing. It's lift them up in prayer and, uh, you know, get that done. Um, ask God. And is it because God needs us to pray? Need? No, God wants us to pray. It's for your benefit so that you will be active in the life of Christianity and the life of this church and the life of Crane and the life of this, what's going on here. He wants you an active participant in the, in the life of the kingdom of God. So, you know, prayer is huge, huge. It's the lifeblood of Christianity. So let me encourage you there. Oh, any other announcements that we need to make sure we take care of? No.